my friends, welcome to today's episode of Equip for the Gospel. Today we are going to be talking about a famous hymn in history, and this begins our series on hymn stories. And I'm here with friend David Thacker, and we are going to be talking about the story of how this hymn, this famous hymn, came about. And today we want to look at the life of this fellow who wrote the song. We'd like to talk about some of the theological concepts written and how it was brought about, but we'd also like to maybe get into some of the things that happened at the end of his life. So I'd like to welcome David to the podcast. Oh, Matt, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Appreciate that. So let's dive right in. Um, I want to talk about, initially, let's talk about the story of this person. Tell us a little bit about who he is, what he, what he, uh, what was going on in his life at the time he yeah. wrote this. Uh, yeah, this um, the the beginning of the story for this song is is likely well known, much more well known than the end of the song. So hmm. it's written by a man named Horatio Spafford. You know, a good old nineteenth century name, and of course <laughs> that's when he he lived. Um, and he was a lawyer in Chicago, um, very very successful. In fact, he ended up using a lot of his money plus debt financing um, to be. Kind of proactive in investing in real estate as the city continued to boom during that era. Uh, his wife Anna came from a, a troubled immigrant home, mm-hmm. kind of devoid of good Christian fellowship. Um, although they claimed to be Christian, she had some bad experiences with the church. Um, I think her her mother died um, as well as as her father kind of became a recluse. She rejected Christ. Um, and then she's influential in the story later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but she ends up coming back into the church by means of Horatio Spafford, who was a Sunday school teacher in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, as well as a lawyer. So they get married, um, and and they have several children. He continues to make his real estate investments. And then, of course, the great fire in Chicago mm-hmm. um, happens and you know wipes out his real estate investments leaving him with quite overwhelming debt financial struggles and leaving her in poor health uh, after the birth of I think their fourth child so he decides we need to get away from here we need to have a vacation and he says I'm gonna send you and the girls to France I'm gonna wrap up some things here in Chicago and I'm gonna come after okay so before we go any further what of what point does it seem like he is uh, he knows Christ? Can you tell in the story? Yeah, so I picked up a biography, and, and we actually have a lot more information about Anna than we do about Horatio. <laughs> so the biography I wrote, uh, I read, not wrote, yeah. <laughs> um, was was about Anna. And so Horatio comes in as it, uh, as it uh, is involved for the importance of Anna's story, because she later becomes the leader of, of this movement that they start. Um, a lot more than he does and becomes quite influential. Um, but it seems like there was no you know, dramatic conversion moment, but he had been raised in the church. as something that he had always embraced. Um, and yeah, so it's not really clear, at least in my mind, if there was some, you know, hilltop moment, yeah. right? This is the conversion experience. The time kind of between... Finney's revival and, and Moody's revival. Okay, yeah. And so the church has, to an extent, a lot of them lapsed into kind of an unevangelistic, 
mm-hmm. and traditionalistic mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what he's raised in a very traditional Calvinistic Presbyterian church in Chicago. Okay. Okay. And I know there's more to that story too. We can yeah. get into later on. So now we're at vacation in France, right? He sends the wife and the four kids, um, on the Ville du Havre, uh, ship to France. Do we know about their ages? I think all of them were under 12. Okay. All of the four girls uh, were under 12, quite young. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ship goes down, and the the youth of the girls ends up, of course, you know, being to their detriment. Mm-hmm. And 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 his wife Anna is the only survivor of his family. So he receives a telegram, I think, from from somewhere in the UK. I believe it may have been Scotland, um, saying saved alone. Um, oh, wow. And from he, her, from from Anna, right? Okay. And so he immediately, with one of his other friends whose family had also been on the ship, um, drop everything they're doing in Chicago, get on a ship, and head over to where where their wives are waiting. So he sent he sent them out on vacation. Right. He was not planning to go with them. He was gonna follow up and meet them after for after a little bit. So he had a few things to uh, wrap up. You know, of course, financially he was hiding a lot of the financial burden from his wife. Okay. So he was sending them on vacation for their health. He was gonna wrap up a few things and you know a couple weeks later or whatever join them. He had, drops everything, of course, and, and and goes out on the very next ship that he can get. Yeah. Um, by that time, the, the exact coordinates of the, the shipwreck uh, were known, and so the, the, the captain, very graciously to Horatio and his friend, goes over that exact spot. And it's mm. at that moment in time, as he's passing over that spot, um, and thinking about the loss of his pretty much livelihood, yeah. and loss of everything in his life, um, yeah. including his four, do- four daughters, he writes to him, it is well with my soul. Now, does um, he write it right there in that spot? It seems that way, okay. right? That's that's what the tradition and, and yeah. stories all say. It's it's there and in that moment, whether it's exactly on the spot or the, the day after. Or it's, it's right sure. there kind of in the, in the wow. moment, in the larger moment of passing over the spot where the shipwreck that, that killed his four daughters. Now, I'd heard that he I, – I, maybe, maybe I'm not – remembering the story correctly but did he have a son that had also died that comes this? later in the story oh, later okay. later in the story they have more children and and they die and it really is kind of the suffering uh that they they fake they that they face that kind of drives them to some of the the end of the story that yeah. that gets kind of weird sure yeah and we'll definitely get into that um okay so he's on the boat he you know in that time period he's writing the hymn mm-hmm. um and, and shortly here we'll jump into the to the meat of the hymn, but anything else that's noteworthy of you know you know in that time period what was going on uh, with him writing the hymn you know immediately post writing the hymn you know he connects does it talk about connecting yeah he connects back, back with his wife um, and 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 they. Um, so did they stay in France? Did they go anywhere else? So they were, they were, I think, in Scotland or somewhere in the okay. UK. That's where they made their emergency landing um, and, and been rescued for a ship, uh, by yeah. a ship um, his wife had. So yeah. then they, of course, reconnect um, and they grieve. Anna is actually very stoic about all of this. Hmm. So, and, and part of that in her, in her story is that she um, had been quite active 
um, before this point in, in kind of a, a slum ministry where she would go down to the slums and the poorer parts mm-hmm. and be trying to do good. And at one point, someone looks at Anna, who grew up in a really poor immigrant home but married just this fabulously wealthy and apparently good-looking man yeah. uh, so that you know people are like, wow, wow, she doesn't deserve him. <laughs> and someone looks at Anna and goes, yeah, you're serving God well now, but like you've never you've never gone through suffering like you've never served God when it hurt. Yeah. And so Anna after the loss of all of this and the loss of her four children um, is very stoic almost in a very admirable way to all the the Christians around her and a lot of that is her thinking back of that I've never served God when it hurt when it when it, mm. I didn't had to count the cost. Here's my opportunity to do that. Okay. How can I be um, a wimp, basically? Yeah. And so she, and, and you, you would think if the story ended like we would hope it would end, right? right. Wow, what an amazing testimony of faith, um, both from Horatio and writing this hymn that we'll get into, yeah. um, which I don't know how many of us could just, you know, yeah. think about times we've wept over the hymn or just been so moved by it and, and just wondered yeah. at the strength of faith in such a moment and if we would have that. Yeah. But the end of the story gets weird and you're like, oh, yeah. that, how, that's confusing yeah. about that. You know, is that just self-will in this point? Yeah, but it's, a, I mean, it, it's a very powerful yeah. hymn. It's, it sounds very majestic. I, I love yeah. the cadence and the way that, you know, I, I couldn't even read when I was looking over this, I couldn't even read the, the lyrics without hearing the melody in my yeah. head. It, it was just so present there. Did he write the, the music for it too? Uh, I don't of? think so. I'd have to look that up actually okay. uh, again, but I'm pretty sure he did not. Um, okay. He wrote the words though. Yeah, that's sure. that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, I think let's let's dive in here to the yeah. to the theological components of this this hymn, and you have some really good notes here. I'd like to talk about, but um, you know, first let's talk about the structure of this hymn. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? You know, it, what, you mentioned something about center to cross, things mm-hmm. like that. But um, is that a common approach to him writing? Well, well, yeah. So you have to realize that at this point in time, Moody is starting to be a thing, yeah. right? And so Horatio in Chicago and in ministry was actually very close with Moody. And this is the time of the great gospel hymns of yeah. Erasanke. Yeah. Um, and and I believe would be Philip Bliss as well. Some of these uh, then getting into Fanny Crosby and mm-hmm. and these hymns that were written almost in a very revivalistic way, where there's they're not written primarily to point a believer to some kind of applicable only to believers, so to speak attribute of God or perspective, right? But this is written as well to teach in the singing the gospel to um, unbelievers. So that's the environment, right, that that Horatio is in, that the the singing is used as as much of a gospel tool as the preaching of the word is. It's not merely for Christians to sing and worship, but it's also an evangelistic tool. And so this this structure of starting with... The sinner, the lostness of, of, of the person, moving to the atoning work of Christ, um, and, then, and then looking at the glories of heaven. It's even you know, perpetuated in our day 
by some of those uh, terrific hymns, um, you know, by by modern writers such as the Gettys and Christ Alone, uh, yeah. Power of the Cross, and, yeah. and uh, Before the Throne of God Above. You look at kind of the plight of the sinner in some of these songs. You move, and the centrality is the atonement of Christ, mm. and then you kind of are are blessed with that glorious vision of the eternal security and hope of the believer. And and yeah. that's not exactly. Um, how this is written, mm-hmm. but you can see that element throughout. Okay, um, for sure. Yeah, so let's let's jump into that first stanza. Well, first of all, I notice there are six verses, but four are commonly sung. Correct, right? W- so why? <laughs> you know, there are things about singing hymns in church that I don't think I'll ever understand. Yeah, and part of that is is. Um, how we decided which verses to cut out and cut in. So we know that in hymnals, you commonly see four verses of a hymn. Or if it's only written with three, you'll see three. Um, Sometimes you see five or six, but only in short hymns like, oh, four thousand tongues to sing, right? Or it's really short. But growing up in a Baptist church, I remember it was always like one, two, and four, yep. or one, two, yep. and five, or something like that. Baptist churches are notorious for skipping the middle <laughs> verses, and I have a pet peeve. I, <laughs> let me okay. tell you, if you you know if you know me for for very long, um, we get talking about hymns, and, yeah. and and if you've been at some of the hymn sings we have in our church, you know I have a I really have a hard time skipping verses. Um, and you know, you know, there's uh, a story in the in the song, right? There I mean, is. There's a flow. There's a there's you mm-hmm. know, there's a theme that that works itself through the song. Absolutely, and you you it's like skipping several chapters in the middle of the book. Yeah, you just good. pick up, and you're like, wait, what? what? <laughs> What happened to Jimmy? Like, yeah. why? Why yeah. is he blind in one eye? Okay, well, I guess here we are. Um, yeah. But but in this stanza, in this song, it seems like the stanzas are are yes connected, but they can also stand alone in, yeah. in kind of a, a segment of thought. Sure. So we lose the verses in themselves, um, and certainly the entirety of the story, so to yeah. speak. But um, it's totally understandable for time and for voices not giving out that. And for space and hymnals yeah. that only well, four verses are included. And I, and I don't know if we'll have time to go through all of it, but maybe what you could do is just do it like a quick flyover, yeah. you know, a 50,000 foot view on each stanza and, and talk about the, the theme that that flows or, or how it, it, it progresses. And then maybe we can jump in a little bit deeper here. Yeah, I when I was thinking through this and studying it over, everything seems to me kind of revolve around A perspective okay. and be kind of this element of confidence and you mm-hmm. can see as the perspective changes the attitude the confidence of ratio also changes and we can definitely relate to this so, so verse one he's looking around him at his circumstances right mm-hmm. um whether it's peace or sorrows whatever his lot in life whatever comes and happens to him yeah uh he says, you've taught me to say it is well with my soul. Mm-hmm. And and this at this point, you see him troubled by circumstances and almost convincing himself. You know how in the psalmist, in the psalm, the psalmist will be at times soul and he'll tell himself something. Or I said to my soul, um, where he was reminding himself to bless the Lord or yeah. to, to think on this certain thing. And this is, seems what he's doing. 
we look around at circumstances and we have to remind ourselves and almost yeah. persuade ourselves with what we know that it is well yeah. with our soul um, and it's going to be okay. Does it kind of remind you of Romans 8.28, for example? Right, right. That's where you, the basis of this theology would be is that whatever happens to us, whatever comes into our yeah. life, certainly as as a Calvinist believing in God's sovereignty, we don't have to worry that we we've done something or upset the balance, we understand that it's not just happening to us, but that God is bringing it into our lives for our good. We know that whatever good work he began in us, he'll complete it, right? That, mm-hmm. Like Ephesians 2 says, the ones he's made alive from when they were dead, he's also going to display the riches of his yeah. grace Amen. in glory. He's raised them to the heavenly places, and he's going to, he's going to finish that work. Um, and whatever happens along the way is his sovereign and good plan for us. Um, but you see then in verse 2, he, he starts to shift focus, doesn't he? He he starts to look less at circumstances mm-hmm. and starts to look at maybe something a little bit more troubling. But he's getting closer to the real centrality of the issue. And he starts to look at spiritual warfare. Um, okay. The, the things in life whether or not they're physical circumstances, the attacks of the devil, yeah, the trials of, of life. And it seems that even as you're looking at something more concerning, as he's getting into the spiritual aspects, somehow, somehow, he has more confidence. Mm. So instead of almost convincing himself, whatever my lot is, you've taught me to say, he's saying, let this blessed assurance control yeah. So he's, he's not there yet. He's not like completely just at peace, but this it's an assurance. It's a confidence. It's controlling him. And, and, the, and the response and the response that we should have to these spiritual yeah. attacks and trials in our life is the same one. Yeah. Look at Christ. You know, mm-hmm. here I am, helpless. I can't overcome the enemy. We're, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Yeah. But, you know, as Romans 8 says, Christ has taken our account. Who's going to lay any charge to us? Who's going to c- compete and win against us? If God before us, who can be against right. us? You know, and, and this idea that Christ has taken our side to the point of shedding his own blood, it's, it's very powerful. It's amazing. Yeah. That is the response we need to have when we think about trials and heaviness in our own life uh, is to look at Christ entering in and being for us. And I think that highlights even just Horatio in his own life in this very moment. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I try to imagine him sitting on the, the, the bow of the boat or something and he's sitting there and, and imagining, mm-hmm. you know, my daughters are, yeah. you know, their bodies are beneath me, yeah. they're gone. They're not here, but th- this immense amount of pain that is just r- racking this man's mm-hmm. soul, but yet to write what he did, you know, to talk about, you know, you say verse one, he's talking about perspective, you know, in his circumstances, yeah. and then there's this confidence, you know, but then you say the progression, he goes on to, you know, more of a, a spiritual warfare, I, w- I would mm-hmm. say, um, you know, and then he has this. This, this, this blessed assurance that he has. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it can only be a supernatural assurance. 
in light of everything he's going on, is like we talk about our trials and things, and it's yeah. it just seems so minute compared to what you know this man went through. You know, right? And and but the reality behind it is still the same, right? Yeah. So whether it's peace for us or sorrows, yeah. and we still have, even if it seems less significant in our lives. Satan does still attack us. He Absolutely. still walks around yes. seeking to devour us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trials still come our way. And the root behind those, whether it's the temptation of the world or the devouring of Satan or the gracious fire of, of God yeah. to try us and shape us and burn away the dross, yeah. the root of that is still the same, even if it's not quite as dramatic, humanly speaking. Sure. Sure. Um, and, and the root of our comfort and our assurance really does have to be the same Mm -hmm. it is christ it's not any kind of self-will it can't be it can't be anything wishy-washy if you're going to overcome if you're going to walk through this with any kind of assurance and comfort it has to be rooted in the fact that christ has regarded your helpless estate you are helpless but Mm -hmm. he has taken note of you of no worth of your own yeah and he shed his own blood on your behalf. And, and what a what a declaration of humility when he mm-hmm. says that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. we want so much to be in control mm-hmm. of our destiny, and yeah. we see that all over social media. You know, take control of your own life, and and yet here's a man. If anyone felt helpless in this moment, it would have been him. But are we not all helpless, even when we don't realize it? Yeah, and, and the same at the same time, though. Barring what had just happened to him, he had every reason to not be or feel helpless. Yeah. Right? He was one of the most successful yeah. lawyers yeah. in Chicago. He was regarded as one of the most eminent citizens. He worked together like he was on the platform with Dion Moody, like as a spiritual uh, powerhouse, as a pillar of the church, mm. as a citizen in Chicago, as a wealthy man, yeah. as an influential figure in the city, and even to some extent the country as he begins yeah. to work with Moody. He has every right in the, in the sense to feel like he has something to offer. Mm-hmm. Of course, God strips that away from yes. him in this moment um, by the loss of everything, of his wealth yeah. and his, his family. But he still has got that reputation, that influence that he yeah. could you know, fall back on. And certainly he was already scheming and, and making plans for how to dig himself out of this pit as, as a wise person would do, not in any kind of sleazy way but as any of us would do as we're looking at financial planning Are you talking before the death of his daughters he's already scared? right so he, the, after yeah. the fire he's already beginning how can I recover how can I you know okay. get back sure. on my feet how can I make sure I'm yeah. taking care of my family it doesn't seem to be in any super sleazy way of you know uh, deceit or yeah. greediness although I'm sure that he had to fight against that he could have corrupted that as well but even in that, where he, you know, even as God stripped us away, he could have still thought of himself as really, yeah, I'm down, but I'm not out. I can pull myself up again. Mm-hmm. We're good. I mean, right. this is this is, but he he does have that humility to say, I have my estate, um, both in terms of spiritual warfare and in terms of you know standing before God, it's entirely helpless, yeah. entirely helpless. And and later on, we do do we not hear, and we can get into it more then, but you know, there's this perhaps a love for the praise of men, you know, that still creeps itself up and sure. in, in later in his life. So Yeah, absolutely. And and so this is yeah. why you it's, it's so weird to talk about this song 
and then you know look at the story behind it. You just right. wish it wouldn't have ended that yeah, way because it's so much <laughs> less complicated and to have this just yeah. terrific heroic story of yeah. God working faith into That's a right. person in such a strong way. That's what we want. We want our heroes. Yeah, we want them all to be perfect, we're, we're right? Happy endings. So. <laughs> okay, well, we're still trying. We're attempting a flyover, and I don't think we're doing we're, we're doing too well at the flyover part. We're, we're no. definitely digging in, but it's it's still very good content. I, I really enjoy this. So we're, we're moving on, though, to verse 3. He begins with, my sin. Yeah. And this is, this is as you get to that center of the hymn. So this is verse okay. 3 of 6 um, or verse 3 of 4, right? And this, this, this is why you never skip the middle verses, okay? <laughs> like, are you going to skip well, the one about remember. spiritual warfare? Okay, but I don't remember skipping this verse. Yeah, I you better not. You better not have this. skipped this okay. verse, okay? Fair are enough. you going to skip the one where Jesus, you know, regards your helpless estate and sheds his blood? Or are you going to skip the one well, where you talk about your sin being nailed to the cross? If we ever make it to the next <laughs> verse, I do feel like we skipped that one, but... But we're on my sin right now, so... Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and here that. he is. The perspective again has shifted. And so it's, I, you see the perspective shift again from his circumstances to this kind of spiritual warfare. And now he's on his... What is the most troubling aspect of it being well with his soul. Hmm. So, yeah, outward circumstances can trouble your soul, but they're not as close, Right. Yeah. You get to spiritual warfare, like that that could be that could be problematic for your soul, like right. But you, you got an answer for that. But the most problematic thing for it being well with your soul or in your entire life, it gets to the core of that is yeah. your sin. So there's this maybe a, a, a narrowing of scope as the verses move on. It starts out wide, just with circumstances. Mm-hmm. Then it moves a little bit closer to home through spiritual warfare, and then now we're at the central aspect of the human, and that's my sin. Right, so it, you can look at it as a journey either to the pinnacle of 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 what our what it means to be well with our soul, starting mm-hmm. with circumstances, moving upward into we're safe even through spiritual warfare, and then coming up here to kind of the the watershed point where it's talking about our sin, and that's what it really means yeah. to be well with our soul. Or you can look at this burrowing down to the core yeah. of like our that. our condition and. He starts about my sin, um, and that's you just gotta sit on that, and you think yeah. about what that means. But then he immediately says, mm-hmm. "Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought." Yeah, and and here the tone shift from verse one: "Whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say." So whatever it is, you've taught me to say. I can convince myself. I, I remind myself. Mm-hmm. I, I work through this issue knowing, even if I don't feel it, that everything's going to be okay, that it is well with my soul. Now, verse 3, the bliss of the glorious thought. This is bliss. This is joy. This is inexpressible joy and full of glory, as the scriptures might say. But is he ref- when he says this, yeah. oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, is he referring back to what he had just written or what he's about to say? No, you, you look at it, he goes on, my sin, and this, he can't even contain himself. He, he wants to start writing about what what happened with his sin. Yeah. And before he can even get to it, he breaks out in this praise, oh, oh, the bliss <laughs> of this glorious thought. It's like oh, he's interrupting uh, himself. Yeah, oh, I can't believe, this is amazing. Yeah. How can this be? Yeah. Like, this is... Wow, my sin, not in part, but the whole. Yes. The entirety of my sin is nailed to the cross. And surely that brings up 
you know, Colossians 2, mm-hmm. where he's taken the record of our offenses and he's nailed it to yeah, the cross. Amen. Our sin nailed to the cross with Christ, and I bear it no more. He gets this is the glorious thought. This is the centrality, of course, of his comfort, of what it means to be well with his soul, that not only has Christ regarded his helpless estate, but he's done the very thing that is necessary, and he's taken away the burden and the guilt and the punishment of sin on his behalf. Well, I hope you enjoyed part one of our hymn story where we took a look at Horatio Spafford's life and the events which led to him writing the great hymn, It Is Well. Be sure to subscribe so you will receive notifications for part two where we dive deeper into the tragic turn Horatio's life took and what ultimately led to his theological spiral where he, his wife, and their followers journeyed into the land of the cults.